Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. We last talked about Abraham Lincoln nearly three years ago, but when a friend of the show comes out with a new book looking at a new part of Lincoln's legacy in a way that's relevant to modern politics, it's time to revisit the rail splitter. So here we are, episode 16F, an interview with Harold Holzer on his new book, Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. I'm excited to welcome Harold Holzer back to the show today. Harold is the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College in New York City. He's chairman of the Lincoln Forum and author of the new book, Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. Now, when Harold told me what he was cooking up, I immediately wanted to have this interview when we got closer to the book's release. Given what a hot-button issue immigration is today, a look back at the immigration policies of Lincoln's presidency felt like a great topic to discuss. Thanks for joining me, Harold. My pleasure. It's always good to talk to you. First question I've got for you is where did the idea for this book come from? You know, um, it's it came a long time ago. I actually signed thought of this in about 2015, so that's like it's eight eight years ago. In the run up to the 2016 presidential mm. election, mm-hmm. when immigration was being spoken about constantly, usually negatively, sometimes um, in a racist way, I thought. You know, ban Muslims, uh, build the wall, What you know, whatever your view on build the wall. It was a kind of a new thing mm-hmm. in 2015. So I signed a contract. I convinced um, my agent and, and a new publisher, brand new publisher to do it. And then the, the ferocity of the attacks on the press became so interesting. And the development of the partisan, you know, talk radio press mm-hmm. that... Um, I I proposed to my publisher that I do the book The Presidents and the Press first. Yeah. And you you know that book because we've talked about it on yeah. this on this show. So I just put it on hold. I had what they call in show business or I don't know, in publishing a two book deal. So I just came back to it. And I guess I was inspired by um by the and sadly nothing has been resolved 8 years later. I'm I'm sort of depressed that it's still timely. But to go back just a little bit in time, I guess I'm the grandson of immigrants, you know, four immigrants. So it's, I, I always, um, I always wanted to talk talk about Lincoln and if there was something to talk about, I wasn't even sure. Um, because I don't know the complete story uh, of my own origins um, because there's no family tree going. I have one side uh, of four that goes back to about 1840 in um, Ukraine. That's about all I know. Cool. Now, on Lincoln, as, as I understand it, the years Lincoln was growing up and the years of the Civil War were years before any immigration laws existed, and the debate seemed to focus more on obtaining citizenship. So first question, is that accurate? You know, What did it take to migrate to the United States back then, and what did it take to earn citizenship? So, yeah, that is where it starts, and people may not understand this, that the U.S. Constitution gave the federal government the right to control naturalization, you know, adopted citizenship. It did not assign any specific rights to the federal government to regulate immigration, except when it came to the slave trade, which is a whole other story, because all of... The controversy in the 19th century about immigration takes place with people having their head in the sands about forced immigration mm-hmm. of African people. Right. So, no, there was no authority for the federal government. They didn't think about it. So, uh, according to the Constitution, what's not explicitly stated as a federal um, authority, it reverts to the states. Sure. Yeah. So the states, particularly, you know, all the states were coastal states yeah. in the beginning, except, I guess, for um, New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, they governed or they policed the flow of people in and out. And they rejected them, they accepted them, they taxed them, uh, and, and they set the standards. And that's the way it was. Um, um, really until the, the uh, 
the Lincoln administration tried to do something to assert federal authority, um, they changed the citizenship requirements every once in a while. So it was five years at the beginning. If you were here, yeah, and you were here for five years, you could apply for citizenship. So that's period. it. So all I need is to get a ticket on a boat, get into the United States, stick around for five years, and I'm a citizen. Unless you could walk on water, <laughs> get a ticket on a boat, or yes, um, five years full stop, and then in the Adams administration, John, the first Adams, yeah. the Alien and Sedition Act was passed right, right. Um, and signed, and the alien part of that act changed the residency requirement to 14 years. Mm-hmm. And as soon as Jefferson defeated Adams, the bill, well, it would have elapsed anyway, but right. it could have been it could have been re, uh, rekindled, but it wasn't, so it went back to five years automatically. And that's, that's where it stayed. So when immigrants got to the United States, what did they generally find here? Were they 100% on their own? You step off your boat, good luck, figure it out. Or were there organizations help them settle in, you know, or, or help them migrate west? What was it like? Right. It's a great question. And I have to bone up a little bit, but I'm pretty sure there were no, or there was no organized industry mm. in welcoming, placing, certainly not a government one. Lincoln, again, I'm getting a little ahead of the story, Lincoln organized or tried organizing the first Federal Bureau, well, he did organize it, to um, encourage and help immigrants. So they were all on their own in the beginning. Um, There were some church organizations that were certainly helpful to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were family organizations. But yes, people came on their own. By the way, just as Lincoln's great, great, et cetera, et cetera, (laughs) grandfather, Samuel Lincoln, came in 1637. He came as an apprentice weaver. And we think he came with the weaver to whom he was either apprenticed or indentured. We're not 100% sure. And they settled in Massachusetts, grew up you know, had families, and they didn't begin migrating south and west until um, the early part of the 18th century. So like all people, you know, uh, they just, they, no one, I mean, there are very few records that say, thank you to uh, uh, Father Jones for sending me passage. Uh, but that's probably part of it. They, these people had somewhere to go, I, I'm mm. convinced. Mm-hmm. They didn't just arrive here and say, what do I <laughs> What's do next? <laughs> yeah, what's next? Where do I go? Although, you know, eventually, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, in our talk, um, by the 1840s, yes, people were doing that. What did early Americans think of these immigrants in this pre-Civil War era? And, and what did Lincoln think of them? And did his views change at all over the years? Okay, that's a lot of questions. But um, so in early, early America, um, people as disparate as, you know, the Federalists and the Republican Democrats disagreed. Right. Um, Jefferson wanted, believed that farms needed labor. Hmm. The American needed farmers. So he was all for people coming in, um, including Catholics, which the Federalists weren't too happy about. Federalists were a bit elitist. as you know, Washington and his Federalist followers did not want impoverished criminals, mm. you know, gang members. No, not gang members. But the same rhetoric we hear today. Yeah. They, they didn't yeah. want the, the, quote, dregs of society, and they use that term mm-hmm. often, to, to come to the United States. In the early Lincoln era, there is still a divide between the new Democratic Party, the Jackson Party, and the Whigs, which was Lincoln's party. The Whigs were were a little bit resistant, particularly to Catholics. Mm. Um, They were unfriendly to Catholic immigrants, and a large number of the early Irish and German um, immigration was Catholic. But we can talk about what what the result was. Um, I mean, Lincoln is kind of agnostic. We don't hear about him mm-hmm. on immigration. I mean, does he have acquaintances that are immigrants? Not at the beginning, um, because he lives in very undiverse Western communities like New Salem mm-hmm. and Springfield. Mm-hmm. Um, when he gets to Springfield, there are 
there are Irish Catholics, and there are, you know, the he becomes friendly with a Haitian hmm. immigrant. Mm-hmm. So, um, and even before America really began turning on some Catholic immigrants, hmm. um, and I'll date that to 1844, Lincoln has, um, 1844 is the date that there are riots anti-Catholic riots in Philadelphia and New York, which Lincoln comments on. Two years earlier, and I don't know if he, if this shows some prejudice on Lincoln's part or a romantic interest in getting back together with Mary Todd, because they'd split up. Um, he may have left her at the altar. Ooh. But, yeah, yeah I know. And she began writing... Um, um, satires for the local newspaper with a girlfriend of hers. And Lincoln apparently helped her. I mean, we don't have hard evidence, but it's his style. He helps her write a particularly um, vicious satire about a man named James Shields. I'd like to come back to him later in our talk because it's interesting. Shields is the Illinois State Auditor. Mm -hmm. He's Irish born. I'm sure he has a brogue. And they make fun of him in this article. Um, you know, he thinks he's romantic, but he kind of he's kind of smelly and the women really make fun of him. Anyway, Shields reads this. He goes to the news and he's a Democrat. So, yep. you know, yep. fair, fair political game. Yeah. <laughs> goes to the uh, goes to the newspaper, obviously demands to know who wrote the article. The editor contacts Lincoln and says, what am I supposed to do? I can't say unless you want me to say your fiance, your again fiance. Did it. <laughs> Lincoln says, no, give him my name. Lincoln is identified. Shields demands an apology. Lincoln writes this really lawyerly letter in which he neither admits anything nor denies anything nor gives an apology. Shields challenges him to a duel. They go off to a dueling ground in Missouri where dueling is still legal and come very nearly to blows with swords. But Shields sees how long Lincoln's arms are. Right. I'm remembering the story now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an ethnic story. See, that's the thing. It's an immigrant story. A lot of these stories haven't been told as such. Anyway, that's Lincoln's first experience is making fun of Irish immigrants. So keep that in mind. So he's going to obviously evolve. Yes. It's not pretty at the beginning, but it's also political. Yeah. Um, there was a political issue involved, too, too cumbersome to go into, but it became an ethnic issue. Oh. And in 1844, the Irish are registering for as Democrats. So the mm. Whigs are going to be suspicious mm-hmm. uh, of the Irish and and the German Catholics because they're regist- they're swelling the ranks of the opposition. Within five years, they're recruited. The Whigs are saying we're not too excited about having you. The Democrats are saying, you know, come over to the picnic and enroll in the party. Yeah, yeah. So the Whigs are worried. In eighteen forty four, city of brotherly love, where Ben Franklin was not too welcoming about immigrants, by the way. Um, in the old days, um, there is a fight among Catholics and Protestants uh, revolving around what Bible to use in the schools. The Catholics don't want to use the King James. They want to use their own Bible. Mm-hmm. And Protestants come to the Catholic areas and make speeches against the Catholic Bible. And, you know, the warnings are always crazy. They're always the same. The the Catholics have more allegiance to the Pope than to the president. They care more about what their priest says than what about the alderman or the mayor says. Anyway, a riot ensues. (coughs) Uh, It's a serious riot with bloodshed and death. Mm. State militias called in. And people blame the Whigs. Even though actually the Irish attacked the Whig speakers. But this goes on for months. Churches are attacked, you know, books are burned. It's pretty ugly. And the Whigs are blamed by many newspapers. So there is a public meeting in Springfield, Illinois, to say we don't have any responsibility. That's not enough for people. Mm. So they draft, they adopt a resolution saying that entry into the United States should be remain as affordable and easy as it's always been. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln writes it. Oh. He drafts it for the meeting. So that's his first public statement on immigration 
and it's a positive one. Cool. That doesn't make him any less friendly to Irish Catholic voters. <laughs> In fact, he's suspicious of voter fraud right up to his Senate election against Douglas. He has these visions of Irishmen roaming around the railroad stations ready to steal votes. He thinks Irishmen are preventing German Protestants from voting. But I don't want to jump ahead to the 1850s. But so in the 1840s, he speaks out. And um, it's a statement that Lincoln admirers can be proud of, at least in this instance. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that story and that beginning of Lincoln's evolution. And in that, you talked a lot about you know politics was a big part of this. You mentioned the Whigs. You know, Lincoln's first break in politics was as a Whig congressman in the 1840s. In the 15 mm -hmm. years that followed, the Whig party would die, and two new parties would rise to complete to replace them, the Republicans and the Know-Nothings. What role did immigration play in killing the Whigs and the struggle between these two new parties? Who's going to be the new one? Is it going to be Republicans for the next 150 years? Is it going to be Know-Nothings? Well, the Know-Nothings actually, in various guises, precede the organization of the Republican Party. They're coming in 52 and 3, and they're, they're a fringe party. They are for raising the uh, citizenship requirement to 14 or 21 years, depending on when they're asked. They're for banning foreign-born people from holding any elective office. Wow. And according to the Constitution, the only office in the government that the Constitution requires um, aspirants to be born on native soil is the presidency. Mm -hmm. um, and by, you know, I suppose the vice presidency, since they may succeed. But no other office is going. So this, this is the know-nothing. And they elect congressmen, mayor, mayor of New York, the mayor of Chicago, at some point in this period are now, it's, it's interesting. The Know-Nothings are a secret organization. Right. right? They, that's why they get this nickname. Mostly they call themselves the Americans, true Americans. But allegedly, if you knock on the door, you know, you're hearing a party going on at your neighbor's house, you knock on the door and say, what's going on? And they say, we know nothing. <laughs> that's that's how the name uh, right. was, was created, uh, by according to legend. Um Anyway, um, the know-nothings begin to make inroads, and the Whigs are saddled with this, this, um, uh, you know, at very least a, a policy of indifference about immigration, because they all the people coming in are joining the other party, right. so they're kind of they're kind of chained to this ideology, and they don't know how to grow their party. Now, really, the the main reason that's always given for the dissolution of the Whigs is their be kind of being constipated on the slavery issue too. They don't know where to go. They have different, right, but it's right. really immigration is at least as much. And the Whigs dissolve. The new Republican Party comes uh, into the into the fore. But in the first presidential election in which sure. the Republican Party competes, yeah, right, eighteen fifty six, John C. Fremont is the candidate. Of course, they immediately attack him for having a Catholic wife and, and you know, being a secret Catholic. Um, a third party candidate emerges. There's a Democrat, James Buchanan, but former President Millard Fillmore, right. who you know is not necessarily a know nothing, but you know got a chance to get back into power. He he runs as the American Party candidate. I don't know if you read the platform, but it's it's a pretty brutal platform. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he siphons off enough votes. It's scary. They win 22% of the vote. I think they win one state, which is not, I think, Maryland. But it's not a lot. But still, it's scary. And then you have the fact that Lincoln and the Republicans are forming, you know, 1854, 5, 6, Real Republican Party is forming, and it's devoted to opposing slavery, opposing the extension of slavery, the ultimate extinction of slavery. Uh, where are they going to get people from? 
Well, where are they going to get candidates? Where are they going to get voters? Well, one is former Whigs, mm-hmm. who are never going to be Democrats, and maybe are not know those things. <laughs> right. But they believe in, in you know things like infrastructure. Right. Um, right. The, uh, the which is a Whig credo. Who are the others? Well, they're Democrats who don't want slavery extension. So they join mm-hmm. the new Republican Party. Um, is it enough? No. Uh, so Lincoln begins a kind of a five-year period in which I argue in the book, he comes, he flirts with the know-nothings. Hmm. Um, he, his major interest in this period is building the Republican Party, building an anti-slavery coalition. Yeah. And he... It clearly does not want to offend the nativists, the anti-immigration forces. He wants them. He sees them as crumbling. Mm -hmm. Reach their apex in 56. Where will they go now? And there are letters. And he says, do nothing to offend the KMs. He doesn't even want to write the word. Wow. Even in letters. You know, he says to his best friend, his former roommate, he writes a a letter that's always quoted to show that Lincoln was pure as the driven snow. (laughs) It says, I am not a know-nothing. How could I be? How can anyone who is devoted to ending oppression against the Negro be um, accused of the degradation of classes of white people? Um, So that's frequently quoted by biographers. But he didn't write it publicly. He wrote it to his buddy who didn't publish it until after Lincoln was dead. Mm During the period, you know, he wrote kind of the same thing to a political uh, uh, person, but not for publication. In that, in the letter, in the version he wrote to the um, Owen Lovejoy, the abolitionist in Illinois, he said, he again said, don't offend the know-nothings. We need them to come to us. We should, I am for fusion, he said, as long as they fuse on my terms. All of these bigots and nativists are welcome in, in the new Republican Party. So, so there's a new angle on the development of Lincoln's republicanism, I think. Yeah, yeah. So privately doesn't support the no other things under the anti-immigration stand. But publicly, he needs a coalition and he needs it to be bigger than the other one. So he'll flirt with them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's all political. Look, in his heart, uh, the, one thing that's changed, and we haven't really gotten to how how immigration changed in the in the late 1840s. But now enough Germans are coming in who are not Catholic, German Lutherans, you know, other Protestant denominations, who are Republicans and are instinctively anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. So he is becoming very tight with German allies at this point. Just the Irish he's got a problem with <laughs> because they're so overwhelmingly democratic. Two big things happen in the in the 1840s that change immigration exponentially. Uh, one is the, um, the Great Hunger, the potato famine right, right. in Ireland. Yeah. Um, Ireland is the only country that loses population in the 19th century, the only major state that we know of. Wow. People just fled, and they fled to relatives or they fled just to get off a boat and arrive in the United States. So Irish immigration by the hundreds of thousands, millions, I would say, ultimately. Then in 1848, Europe erupts in liberal democratic right. revolutions yes. in Germany. Yeah. So none of these revolutions, except maybe eventually Italy, is it successful. Right. And so political refugees become, once they are, you know, escape or imprisoned and released, they stream into the United States, as do their families. And that's the German Protestant flow. So we have millions of, uh, 10 million in the 19th century coming principally from Germany and Ireland, but also England and the Scandinavian countries. So that's huge in that period. And that's when the political alignments in the U.S. shift with the Irish who come here first, swelling the ranks of the Democratic Party and the Germans who come a few years later and continue to flow in, joining the new, eventually, well, they become Whigs and then they join the Republican (laughs) Party. Yeah. Well, some become Democrats, um, but eventually they mostly become Republican. It's a very ethnically, uh, an ethnic political situation in the United States. So it's 
um, not just slavery and anti-slavery. Yeah, I grew up in uh, okay. Texas, and there's a significant German population towns, you know, in some of the hill country there. And when you later get to the Civil War, those were definitely not trusted by the rest of the state and sometimes attacked. So you definitely have a right. real patchwork happening. So if we fast forward to 1861, as Lincoln was elected and as the Civil War got underway, how did that change American immigration? And, and some things that just jumped to my mind, I mean, you have a blockade around the South very quickly. So I imagine that means everybody's being funneled to New York or other ports. You know, like how else did immigration change? First, it's important to note that uh, immigration is always predominantly in the North. Um, it's where the opportunities are. Immigrants don't want to enter a forced labor system where they're competing with slave labor. Yeah. They want to they want to head to places like New York and Philadelphia where there are, are opportunities. And then, as you pointed out earlier, eventually there are means and opportunities for them to migrate west. Yeah. So I'm not sure the blockade has that much implication, but certainly the war does. Nobody wants to come into a country as you and I have discussed, where there's a war going on and where there are rumors that a draft law might, you know, come into being, that nobody wants to have an obligation to a, to a, engage in a fight that's not their fight. Right. Um, although there were many Germans who want to fight and ultimately Irish who, who do fight. But immigration in 1861 slows for the first time in, you know, 25 years. And that is a big, big change. Uh, and I believe, ultimately, that's one of the reasons Lincoln will act to, um, you know, give an injection to immigration two and a half years after the war starts. But it definitely slows down during the war. Uh, you mentioned this. Why would anybody immigrate to a country in the middle of the Civil War? Okay, why did anybody immigrate to a country in the middle of the Civil War? What were these people thinking? You know, the, what I say in my book is the two big uh, factors are people came seeking food and people came seeking freedom. Hmm. And, it, you know, in Ireland, there's, there's really nothing to eat. They can't even eat the small percentage of the crops that are free of disease because the British have a policy where they get the cream of the crop. I think that's probably where the expression may have started. They get the cream of the crop. The farmers need potatoes to eat, and they need spuds to plant. Don't ask me how potatoes even grow. I really don't. You know, I'm a city guy. Really. I've, I've read the book but, The Martian, and everything I know about potatoes comes from that book. <laughs> so they are planted, right? They have right. to be replanted. You, every little uh, spud, every little divot on the outside of a potato, yeah. So they don't have – they need food. They have big families, and they need food, and that's – you know. And if you're being oppressed by a dictator on the continent, you've got to get out of town because – you're going to wind up in prison. So that is, you know, there's no, it's not like refugees during World War II when you had to face submarines. It's, uh, okay. th there's some piracy on the high seas for sure, sure yeah. on the Confederate side, but there is <clears throat> still access. Not enough though. But yeah, sure. That's why immigration dwindles because people are weighing the, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we can't go to the South because it's basically that's where the war is taking place. All right. And, and yeah. Cool. Um, what was Lincoln's policy toward immigration during the war? You mentioned about two and a half years in. It's going to change. What's this change going to be? Well, in the first instance, at the beginning of the war, Lincoln makes a monumental decision. Um we're not sure how he thought of it. We know that one of his early meetings was with a, an Irish Democratic New York lawyer named Richard O'Gorman. And he says to him, um, can I do that again? Because now I'm not sure it's O'Gorman. Yeah, yeah, no, go for okay. it. All right, sorry. I've no never done this. I've never stopped. Um, so Lincoln... Uh, so Lincoln makes a monumental decision at the beginning of the war. He meets with a New York Democratic Irish lawyer, and he asks him to raise the 1st Irish Regiment. Hmm. And the guy says, I don't know anything about regiments. I'm a lawyer. And he says, did you ever, you know, this is again, 
Lincoln, not at the most, at his best, but he says, did you know ever know of an Irishman who didn't love to wear epaulets on his jacket? They'll I come love epaulets. <laughs> right, there you go. So this guy didn't raise the regiment. Yeah. But it gave Lincoln an idea. This cannot be a Republican war. So he immediately gets, uh, encourages Democrats to raise regiments. Uh, as well as Republicans. That's a major, major thing. A few days after Sumter, 100,000 people gather in Union Square in New York. Um, I think this was the galvanizing point. Under the great bronze statue of, equestrian statue of George Washington, they actually hoist the flag of Sumter onto George Washington's sword. Um, this is the statue that some people want to take down now because Washington was a slaveholder. It's only the second equestrian statue in the history of the United States. The first one was torn down, the George III. I was wondering <laughs> was yeah. be the British king. Yeah. So they need, and there are all these patriotic speeches about enlisting. We've got to enlist. Well, one of the speakers is an Irishman, and one of the speakers is a German. And they, they both say, we don't particularly love Lincoln, but he's our president. Hmm. We love our former country. We love our country of origin, but we're Americans now. Mm -hmm. That flag is our flag. That flag that was sullied in the dust in Charleston mm -hmm. is our flag. The, what the Irish speaker says, what they did to our flag is as bad as if the British fleet had come over here. Mm -hmm. um, and enlistments of ethnic regiments begin, and Lincoln realizes this is a potential source of immense strength. The diversity of the North that he was once wishy-washy about because mm -hmm. too many were Democrats is mm -hmm. now the greatest strength of the Union cause and the fight to restore the Union. So, you know, the, the it's interesting. He writes three names on a list in, in the White House. Um, um, Michael Corcoran, Thomas Francis Marr, uh, who was a famous Irish patriot who had been sent to Australia. He to penal colony. He escaped. He came to the United States. Hmm. Corcoran was another Irish hero. Um, he had famously refused to assemble his his all-Irish regiment when the Prince of Wales came to visit New York. He said he's he's the symbol of oppression. Hmm. And he was being court-martialed at the time. And then the Civil War broke out and they said, oh, never mind. What? <laughs> The third guy is James Shields, the man who Lincoln had um, teased into a near duel. Yeah. Who had later become a, Me a Mexican war general mm. and a United States senator from two different states. He was now living on the West Coast. Lincoln wanted him because he was such a symbol of Irish pride. Mm. Um, and so, and, and at the same time, um, he had appointed one of his biggest German supporters, Karl Schurz, as minister to Spain. And Schurz said, first, I want to recruit men. Give me a leave of absence. I want to lead a regiment. Mm. That didn't work out. Mm. It was a little too late. But Franz Sigel in Missouri becomes the symbol of Irish of German recruitment. He's a lousy general, but he's a great symbol. I fight Smith Sigel becomes a catchphrase among Germans. And What's unfortunate is that these original ethnic commanders were not terribly successful in the field. But Lincoln had trouble dismissing them entirely because they were so useful as lightning rods, as touchstones for recruitment. But that's what Lincoln turned to early in the war. German regiments, Irish regiments, uh, the Irish at Bull Run, mm -hmm. the Germans at Bull Run, and, and ever after. Mixed results, to be sure. Some of the stories... You know, the Irish gained in reputation as the war went on, hmm. and the Germans kind of lost reputation because of their alleged uh, retreat, frenzied retreat at Chancellorsville. Hmm. So they had to live that down. I've heard anecdotes as the war goes on of immigrants being wel welcomed off the ship, handed a Union uniform, and sent off to join the war. How accurate is that? Well... There was a Union recruiting station a few hundred yards from Castle Garden. Castle Garden was a, an entertainment complex, we'd call it today. 
It was a glass enclosed, uh, kind of a just a, I don't know, a convention hall, a theater. It's where Jenny Lind, speaking of famous emigres, a Swedish nightingale, sang opera when she arrived for her first American tour. And that became the landing station before Ellis Island mm. was a landing station. Mm-hmm. And so people came through, they registered, they went off. Again, no restrictions, you know. Um, and uh, the recruiting station was nearby. Were there recruiters prowling around saying, you know, get your red-hot enlistment paper? Sure. It wasn't as as terrorized as it, se- it was in the movie Gangs of New York. I mean, people were right. not dragooned and dragged off ships. Although there were some cartoons in the British press that indicated that, or that suggested that the Irish were being uh, wooed by uh, liquor, mm. to which, of course, you know, from the beginning of immigration on, the Irish were accused of being inebriates. So, yeah. you know, give them a glass of whiskey and they'll go anywhere. Yeah. And the Germans were being lured by, it took three things to lure a stubborn, a stubborn German, according to, you know, the canards of the time. One was um, beer. The other was kind of umpapa music. And the other was women in low-cut dresses. So they would have those three. I know. It's kind of universal. <laughs> All four are universal uh, lures. but So, yeah, I think there was aggressive recruiting, but not quite the mythical kind. Although people in, in Europe believed it, for sure. And it became something of a diplomatic question that the North had to answer. Are you, in fact, soliciting people here in Europe and then dragging them over uh, for recruitment? And again, that's why Lincoln... Um, decides at some point using his executive powers and the, uh, his powers in his version of what the State of the Union message was in 1863 to propose some federal solutions to to the uncertainty of immigration. And, and that's what I wanted to ask about next. You've hinted that he will create some of the first uh, infrastructure supporting immigrants, attracting immigrants. Right. Can you tell me, what did he build? So... In the State of the Union, which in those days was in the winter, so it was December 1863, and he cried. I always, I, I'm amazed by Lincoln's stamina, because you know, he's doing so many things at once. And any time I, I write about a subject, whether it's the press or whatever, or oratory, or I always try to keep in mind that he's also handling five other things. The war... Uh, the right. beginnings of the emancipation, the first five months right. of six months of emancipation, the first four months of black recruitment, um, the Homestead Act, settling the West. Right. He's doing, you know, land-grant colleges. This is all on his plate. Um, he decides in December 1863, in the state, the annual message, as it's called, to propose immigration reform. I mean, I call it immigration reform. It's not quite because... There hasn't been an immigration policy. Right. He calls it an act to encourage immigration. And he writes this long message right after the Gettysburg Address. He comes back from the Gettysburg Address. He comes back sick. He's got um, um, smallpox. Mm-hmm. A fairly serious case. It's been dismissed as minor, but it was serious enough that his valet who caught it from him clearly, died of it. Yeah. So it was a serious enough strain. He just happened to be a very tough guy, very physically fit. And, um, you know, he'd had just left a son with smallpox, so perhaps he he caught it from his son, but maybe with a few more antibodies built in, mm-hmm. none of which they were aware of. So he writes the message while he's sick. He doesn't have to speak it, because mm, in those right. days, yeah. the State of the Union, until Woodrow Wilson, right. they were sent up and read by a clerk. And the Act to Encourage Immigration states very plainly that this, that immigrants are a source of national strength and wealth. And he wants them to return in the numbers that they had during the war. He wants a Bureau of Immigration to be set up in the United States to get rid of um, conditions on ships that discourage immigrants, you know, mm-hmm. filthy conditions, the stealing of fares by unscrupulous 
transportation companies. He wants a bureau set up to get people into jobs. He wants people to be eligible for the draft. Mm -hmm. To placate the more conservative element, he wants um, a system created that so that the United States is not used as a haven for foreigners to escape debts. Mm. Uh, and once paid off, they say, well, I'm really uh, a citizen of another country. So he wants to clean up the system. He wants to federalize it. And the biggest innovation that he proposes is federal funding for the transportation of foreigners to the United States. Whoa. I mean, that is huge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, what would... What would conservatives say today? It's communism. If only Karl Marx was being more widely read, they would say it was communism. It was a huge project. And it was a bridge too far, mm. as it happened. His own cabinet didn't love it. Mm -hmm. um, Secretary of State said that it would you know, cost a million dollars a year to underwrite this. Well, the problem is the Civil War was costing a million dollars a day. <laughs> mm -hmm. And... And, and the other reason, he'd link, Lincoln did not want these people solely to join this, the armed forces. As he said, and I should have said this in the message, he said, our factories are not manned. Our mines, which is a bigger deal now than it is then, when mining is a dirty word now, it wasn't in the 1860s. Right, right. Um, um, and he said these jobs have to be filled or our industry will collapse. That was one of the reasons. So the war is costed, but this is a, still a bridge too far for federal support. And even Lincoln's um, uh, most supportive newspapers, the New York Times, mm -hmm. uh, is kind of an administration organ at that point. They say um, that this will encourage, again, this racist language, the, the worst elements of society, mm. prisoners and criminals and uh, the worst fear always and it's a reasonable one in a way. It's still a fear is that people dependent on the public dole, mm -hmm. um, the indigent will be among the group. Yeah. So Lincoln does not get his way, but he does get a bureau established. He does get shipboard reforms. He does improve Castle Garden and eventually will build immigration stations in New Orleans and Boston and mm. Baltimore mm -hmm. and Philadelphia. And the flow of immigration increases. Eventually, he'll exempt the arrivals from the draft in his next proposal to clean up the bill. Um, but this is a revolutionary act of executive and federal authority over immigration. The feds have never encouraged or discouraged immigration. Lincoln wants manpower. He says it's a source. They are a source of national wealth and strength. And we can't go on without these what he eventually will call the next year replenishing streams for this country. You mentioned cabinet didn't love the idea. New York Times didn't love the idea. Was that the national mood too, or was there any kind of national ooh eagerness for this or support for a pro-immigration policy? Well, there was support for immigration because business owners did not have sufficient labor. And don't sure. forget, it's not just that people joined the army. Yeah, it's that people died in the armed services. So right. if we accept right. the, the new total of 750 for the war, this is the midpoint of the war. So it's got to be close to 350,000 dead, untold thousands wounded. Right. Um, and, and as many as a million men or well, several 700,000 men are in arms. Yeah. So if you count that, it's a huge depletion of the workforce. And I think Lincoln is also thinking, with all the success of the Irish Brigade and the German uh, 11th, and, yeah. and they've taken, a, as particularly the Irish Brigade, took you know casualties way beyond their numbers on the Fredericksburg battlefield. Mm. Um, and you know you need to replenish the army as well as the as the civilian workforce. So what was the national mood? Yes, we need new population. But there is not much support for investing in, mm. you know, mm -hmm. giving people a free ride, giving them an, unf you know, right. a fair chance and more than a fair chance, you know, got to giving them a leg up. Yeah. So it's a mixed it's a mixed reaction. But the bill does get passed. The bill, the bill to create the Federal Bureau gets passed. And. 
the you know it's easier now after 1864 when Lincoln signs it on July 4th. Um, easier easier for immigrants to to make the trip and to make a safer trip. And then the federal government does alliances with these. You you asked at the beginning of our talk whether there were agencies, private agencies that right. supported this. And yes, um, there was now agencies that moved people westward. And there were now agencies, and Lincoln encouraged this, even though he worried that it was a kind of slavery. Mm. And maybe he thought about his own ancestor, Samuel, although mm. I doubt whether he knew mm. much about him. But people with private agencies and industries would advance potential immigrants the sum for their voyage. But then they would have seven years to pay it off. Right. And if they didn't pay it off, you know, they could lose their property yeah. here in the United States. And I will say also Lincoln made it, it the legislation also opened up the Western lands, the free land under the Homestead Act to foreigners, even before they became citizens. So that was huge. And um, I always think it's interesting that Lincoln signed it on July 4th mm-hmm. because um, he had given a speech around July 4th uh, six years earlier when he was running for the Senate. And he spoke to a, a large, largely German crowd in Chicago. Yeah, I think he was mad at himself for missing a big German event on July 4th. So a few days later he came and the Germans came out for him. And he had to show them that he appreciated their status as a voting bloc that supported Republicans and him specifically. So he said, today's July 4th, and I'm, this is all paraphrase. Right. Um, we know that there are people in this country who were descended from the founders, uh, who created this country. But I look among you today and I see many who are not. But the Declaration opened this country to everyone. And you are entitled to opportunity in America as much as those who are the blood of the blood mm. of the founders of the country. So, I mean, I do make the distinction. I know it's going to be sound political, but Lincoln didn't say when he had the opportunity that immigrants were poisoning the blood of the country. He said they sure. were the blood of the blood of yeah. the country. Great. Just saying. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. There's one more moment from Lincoln's administration, from the Civil War, I want to touch on. And uh, it's it's featured in the movie you mentioned earlier, Gangs of New York. Anyone who's seen that movie might remember that the movie ends with this climactic riot ripped straight from history, the New York draft riots of 1863. Who was rioting? Why? And where did immigration fit into those riots? Well, the, the take the easiest question, part of the question first, it was overwhelmingly an Irish an Irish American riot. It was caused by the first the drawing of the first names for the military draft in July 1863. It wasn't being watched too closely because the Union had just won this great victory at Gettysburg, uh, in which the Irish had acquitted themselves so brilliantly. Um, and but the Irish had been um, inflamed. Um, by Democratic newspapers who told them that, A, you're not going to be fighting for the Union, you're going to be fighting for blacks and for black Mm -hmm. freedom. Mm -hmm. And B, once blacks are free, they're going to come up here to the North, to New York, and they're going to undercut your jobs and wages. They're going to work on the docks and in the factories for less than you do. Mm -hmm. So you're fighting for your own destruction. So it, you know, the, the first riders smashed the draft office but in the you know the insane July heat and without much pushback at first because nobody expected it, it became a marauding event and it also was really a race riot at yeah. a certain point because yeah. blacks were killed indiscriminately and um, the so-called colored orphans asylum. It, it, but the orphans were saved by a young Irishman, so mm. you know there were people who obviously didn't participate. But the riot was political. They attacked Republicans. They attacked the New York Tribune. Um, they attacked black people, as I said. Uh, they attacked Irishmen who were pro-union. They attacked a, a union officer and brutally killed him, tortured him, set him on fire. It was wow. it was unbelievable brutality. Um, was it quite like the gangs of New York? Well, you know, 
they didn't have volleys of soldiers firing on them when they finally got here a few days later. Although the soldiers did put down the riots quite late in the game. But yes, that, and the, it was an Irish event, but it was also it could be seen as a Democratic Party mm. uh, riot because mm -hmm. the Democrats were pushing back against black freedom, against black recruitment, against the... the and, and also what the Irish objected to quite rationally was that there was an exemption clause in the first draft act. If, if a substitute, uh, if you could find a substitute or pay $300 for the government to find a substitute, you could be exempt from the war. So it was right, a rich man's right. war and a poor man's fight, as the saying went, and it was discriminatory against poor whites. Did this, uh, these riots, did it have any impact on the national mood around immigration or Lincoln's attempt to implement policy? Because, you know, when you really think about it, this is the worst case scenario that anyone who's anti-immigration would have been pointing to and saying, this is what's going to happen, and it happened. Well, it's a great question. I wish I dealt with it side by side in the book, but it yeah. didn't seem to diminish Republican encouragement of immigration, even okay. though a large number was going to be from Ireland, because they put in place exemptions for immigrants from, from military service, first, from, you know, required military service. But again, Lincoln, I think Lincoln is earnestly trying to build a diverse and polyglot society. Mm -hmm. And he realizes he can't do it with just blacks, particularly since they're non-voters. He's got to build support for diversity. Um, and, you know, we haven't touched on this, but it's all very complicated. They're also building a railroad. Right. <laughs> yeah. But they're also, right, the Transcontinental Railroad. Yep. But they're also, whereas California once welcomed Chinese immigrants, right. Congress is also passing a, call, a, a bill called the Cooley Exclusion Act, which later becomes the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the Republicans argue, well, you know, immigration by, quote, coolies, and I know that's a racist word uh, today, um, that's creating a new slave trade. So you've got that going on. So this is exclusively European immigration. It's not Latino. It's right, not Asian. Right, right. Um, yeah. And at the same time as Lincoln is pushing immigration, he also has no problem with the... Um, with the containment and uh, of indigenous people, right? Uh, and the use of their lands. A lot of the land, the homestead law, the homestead right. mm -hmm. lands that are being given free to immigrants were once native land. Um, and of course, all the Africans, I mean, African Americans who were here, were forced emigres from Africa or mm -hmm. their descendants. Mm -hmm. So it is a very complex picture. And of course, there's the religious picture, the, you know, the right. Catholics versus Protestant picture. The fact that Lincoln got his head above water in this and imposed a, a, a kind of progressive and um, sympathetic policy and said it in his messages to Congress, I think sets him above, uh, above his contemporaries and ahead of his times. What stamp did Lincoln leave on the American immigration system? This, I think several. One is that the federal government had a role to play. Uh, they were, whether they would acquit themselves um, well or, you know, look, this problem of refugees is going to exist into World War II in the Vietnam era. Um, in World War II, refugees were turned away and sent back to their death in Europe. In Vietnam era, there were people who were not let in. And then uh, Lyndon Johnson liberalized immigration to make sure that the, uh, the the victims of war in Southeast Asia were admitted more freely. So I think Lincoln is the first to understand that there's a federal role here. There's a federal policy here. There's a federal bureaucracy that needs to be put in place. And remember, people resisted federal bureaucracies in those days, except for the post office. <laughs> States did not want federal bureaucracies. Yep. Um, and... Um, so I think he taught us a lesson, and I think in most of his remarks, most of his published remarks, he, as he says to in in Cincinnati once, I don't want to throw anything in the way of people coming here and taking, you know, un, and benefiting from uh, the 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 opportunities in this country. Is it always true that he would have preferred more Germans and fewer Irish because there were more Republicans and fewer Democrats? Yes, because that's mm -hmm. political. 
But the fact that he could rise above even that political constraint, I mean, in 1864, he had enormous trouble with the German vote. They wanted to split off from the Republican Party. They wanted to support Fremont as a third party candidate. Lincoln wasn't moving fast enough on slavery in the border states like Missouri, where there are a lot of Germans. He wasn't, um, he had humiliated Franz Sigel. He had relegated him to unimportant commands. He hadn't promoted him. Um, but he fought to get the German vote back and needed it in some of those western states. Could have been absent Atlanta and uh, Sheridan's Ride and Kearsarge in Alabama uh, and Mobile Bay. It could have been a much closer election in 1864 than it turned out to be. So he had a fight to get back that ethnic loyalty. And um, he may not have gotten it from the Irish, which still voted overwhelmingly Democratic. Hmm. But uh, there was a moment when there was even a push for the uh, Irish vote for the Republican side. Lincoln lived a long time ago, but the debate over immigration is ever present. Um, what can we learn from Lincoln about the politics, risks, and benefits of immigration? So I'm going to answer that, and then I hopefully will not be asked that again in the next few months. Because um, I don't, you know, except for the blood of the blood yeah. comment, which is irresistible, you know, <laughs> yeah. make that comparison. I don't, it's much more complex today. But to say that, you know, a country is nothing without borders and, you know, walls, it wasn't so. Now, the numbers were smaller numerically, but proportionately they weren't all that different. We right. were a country of 20 million and we had millions of immigrants coming in in the 19th century and survived and grew better and bigger and stronger. And uh, uh, I would say kind of more interesting as a country with all of our ethnic backgrounds and, and um, uh, you know, family heritage that we bring to bear in this country. These are people who wanted freedom in America. And I think Lincoln believed in creating a pathway. Um, uh, he might have come down on making federal citizen requirements at some point, but I think they would have been, I think they would have been progressive. And I think the lesson learned is this country is too great and too strong to not always be a magnet for oppressed people. We, we have a, a long record, except with African Americans, of being a country that provides opportunity for Strangers among us, as sometimes immigrants are called. Um, that's a great American heritage. It's not true anywhere else in the world. And, of course, it's not true today. The problems in France and Germany and Scandinavia, the, there is huge op – and in England, there's huge opposition to changes in society. But as Lincoln knew as early as 1860, this is already a diverse polyglot society. Um, and and much of our early strength before the Civil War was based on immigrants who farmed the farms. The Germans farmed. The Irish worked the factories, the docks. Uh, everyone created schools and churches, and that was a strength and not a liability. So that's a, I think people should look back at how we handled immigration uh, in the 19th century. There was a lot of pushback then, but Abraham Lincoln serves as a reminder because he regarded immigration as an opportunity, not a curse. And the reason I used the words brought forth on this continent as the title is, um, first of all, it's the first, it's the last quote from the Gettysburg Address that hasn't been used for a title by somebody. So. <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I actually had no title. And I thought, I'm going to read the Gettysburg Address again and see if I can... And there it was. Yep. What is Lincoln bringing forth on this continent? Well, it's not just freedom for African Americans. It's also opportunity for immigrants. And I think he had it in the back of his mind because surely three weeks before his annual message, he's already got immigration reform in his head. So I think that's the lesson learned, even in war, even in a total recalibration of society with black freedom. Doors ideally should remain open, not closed. If you've enjoyed this interview with Harold, I strongly encourage you to pick up his latest book, Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration, out this month. Thank you for your time, Harold. 
I thank you, Kenny. I hope, I mean, you are the best. Um, <laughs> you, you've given me so many thoughts on how to frame my discussion, but it's just always great to talk to you because you know this stuff so well and you read it. And Thank you for having me again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music today in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, it's time for Tricky Dick himself, Richard Nixon, from his red-baiting rise to the trial of Alger Hiss and his eventual election to the presidency, to the roots of his fall in Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, and Watergate. It is a story unlike any other. That is coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.